so this morning, uh, what I, w- I want to do is I want to kind of walk through in these two chapters, mostly having to do with the priests themselves and not so much the, the animals that they're allowed to sacrifice, because all of that was covered earlier in Leviticus. It's sort of a repeat there at the second half of chapter 22. But I want to see these restrictions for the priests. And I want us to kind of understand where they're coming from. And so first, the primary restriction for the priest in the way that they live their lives that was supposed to be different from the way everyone else lived their lives was a restriction for how they engaged those who were dead. There's a mourning reality to humanity. Humanity in its fallen state is meant to mourn those things that demonstrate fallenness. And nothing demonstrates fallenness greater than death. The scripture makes this quite clear for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The the mandate given in the garden was the, the day that you eat of this fruit, you will die. And so this notion of death is kind of the the pinnacle of the picture of what it means to live in a fallen world, to live in a fallen among a fallen humanity. And so there's this mourning that takes place for the dead. Uh, and, and it's more than just the loss of the loved one. But it's an acknowledgement that the world is not as it ought to be. And a lot of times those who are not religious and particularly those who are not of the Judeo-Christian religion have a difficult time articulating the mourning that they have. Because they're not connecting it with a mourning beyond just the loss of an individual but to a greater mourning of the world not being as it ought to be. And it's actually one of the most profound and ridiculous accusations that those who are from a more agnostic and atheistic bent have against Christians. I've heard it lots of times. Maybe some of you have as well. And they go, I just don't understand the inconsistency of these Christians. When somebody that they know and love who claims to be a Christian dies, they're just so sad about it all the time. And you should be totally excited because they're in heaven and they're with Jesus. And if you really believe what you said you would, you wouldn't be so sad all the time. Well, the Christian's mourning isn't just for the loss of the one that they love. A Christian's mourning is, is that death is an announcement that the world is broken and needs a savior. And so the mourning that we experience, yes, we're mourning the physical loss of a loved one, but we have the great hope that we shall see them again in Christ and that all things will be made new and that all things will be redeemed. But the fact that we have lost this loved one is a demonstration that human sinfulness has committed cosmic treason against the Most High God. And death is the pinnacle announcement that the world still is not the way that it ought to be and that one day it will be different from this. And I'm mourning the fact, I'm groaning with creation that the world is still this way. That's part of what's going on. And so there's this mourning process that humanity has. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's a good and a healthy thing. But for the priest, they were not to defile themselves. And defile themselves means to touch the bodies of dead people. Now, for normal priests, they had some exceptions. Those who were very close to them as relatives for Father, for mother, for son, for daughter, for brother, or for unmarried sister. However, the high priest couldn't defile himself by touching the dead body of anyone. That one individual who had received the anointing oil to go into the most holy place, who had been given the privilege to make the atonement sacrifice once a year, was never allowed to mourn in that way. Like everyone else was. 
And in fact, if you remember the day that Aaron's sons died because of the, the bad incense that they gave. What was the command? It's one of the only times that God spoke to Aaron directly. And what was the command that he gave to Aaron? He said, don't mourn for your sons. Don't do that. Keep, keep yourself washed and clean. Keep the garments on. Stay inside of the holy place. Make sure that you're making the offerings and the sacrifices like you're supposed to. Do not mourn for your children. Part of it was because they'd sinned against the Lord. Part of it was what was going to be this mandate that would come later of not defiling himself as the one purified to bring the most holy sacrifice in the entire nation of Israel. He was, in essence, the embodiment of the representation of God before all the people. That's who the high priest was. So don't defile yourself with these things. You have a calling that's greater than that. Now, there was also some regulations in marriage and in family life. So the priests were not supposed to marry anyone that had been given over to harlotry. The priests were not supposed to marry anyone who had previously been divorced. The high priest for certain and likely all the priests in general were supposed to select someone who was a virgin from among their people to marry. And then there were a host of other family regulations regarding who could eat the food and who couldn't eat the food. Because remember, the food sacrificed in the tabernacle area, some of it was off limits, but most of it was to be shared among the priests for their portion so that they could have food to eat. You'll also notice a couple of other things here, one of them of great importance. No one with any measure of substantial physical deformity or defect was allowed to serve as a priest. And it gives a list. It gives a host of different things here. We don't have to go back through all of them. But those who had substantial physical handicaps that were noticeable were not allowed to participate in the activities of the priesthood, even if they were born into the priesthood family. Because, you know, you have to be born into it. You can't cross tribes with it. It's the tribe of Levi. That's the tribe that's getting to be the priest. And among the tribe of Levi, those who have these defects and deformities are not allowed to serve in the priesthood. They have to do something else. Now, notice the compassion of God in here for them. They're still, as family members of that tribe, allowed to eat the food of the priest. Because what are they going to do? Starve to death? They don't have a land allotment, so they can't raise their own stuff to sustain a family. But if they're not allowed to eat the food from the tabernacle, they're going to die. So there is a merciful compassion that's found here. They are allowed to still participate in that table, but they're not allowed to participate in the work of the priest. And then there's some other regulations. There's caution about how they approach unclean things and clean things before they do their work. And then there's a whole section in chapter 22 reminding us of not allowing defective sacrifices to be brought into the temple area. So this is what we have for the priest in the book of Leviticus. These restrictions don't mourn certain dead people the way that you normally would mourn the dead. If you're the high priest, essentially don't properly mourn anyone who's died. Don't even leave the sacrificial area if you're doing the sacrifices to attend to the reality of the mourning ceremony. Be cautious about who you marry. Be cautious about how, who you engage with. 
All these kinds of things. I want to walk through briefly, and and normally I give you cross-references. If you need a cross-reference for the the four things that we're about to talk about here, I would just say the New Testament. Okay, so if if you want me to read the whole New Testament to you this morning, we can, but the stuff out there will start to get a little gamey. So, I want to talk about how Jesus provides for us a better priesthood. I hope by now, if you've been with us in Leviticus for a little bit, you're in agreement with me that Jesus has supplied a better priesthood. Amen. So here's another picture of this. So if you're going to be a priest, got to be careful about mourning the dead and touching the dead and that sort of thing. Let's talk for a second about Jesus's concern for the dead. Do we know of some stories Where Jesus concerns himself with the dead to the point of making physical contact with dead people, which is not allowed for the priest. Of course, Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi. He's of a different tribe. He's of the priesthood of Melchizedek. So he's already a greater priest to start with. And so he's showing you a higher level of priesthood. We remember when he goes and he says, she's not dead, but she's asleep. And everyone laughs at him. And he goes into the little girl's room and he touches her and he tells her to daughter, rise up. She rises up. We have Jesus attending to the funeral of his friend Lazarus and weeping for him. High priest wasn't even supposed to leave to go do something like that. Here we have the great high priest taking a long journey to intentionally go to his friend's funeral. And weeping for his friend that he knows he's about to raise from the dead. Again, mourning's not always about the loss of the person, but about the brokenness of the world. Because even Jesus wept at a funeral, knowing full well that that person was about to live again. So Jesus has a very different mindset for the priesthood's interaction with those who've died. With death, with pain, with sorrow. Friends, we are all called, not to get ahead in the sermon, but we're going to get there. We are all called now to be priests. We are a royal priesthood. That's what we are. We should demonstrate a different, higher, Christ-like compassion when it comes to those who've died and those who are mourning the death of those that they love. That's what we should do. We should not respond the way that the priests were called to respond in Leviticus 21 and 22. Rather, we should enter into the better priesthood that Jesus has given us and be very concerned and compassionate and merciful in the face of death. Speaking words of life to those who are walking through the most difficult thing that you can experience on this side of glory. Second. Notice Jesus's concern in his ministry for those who are in sin. These regulations for the priests. Priests can't take a wife from uh, from among the women who've been uh, given over to harlotry. They can't take a wife from among the women who have been divorced. If their daughter is given over to harlotry, she must be removed from his family and burned to death. And we can walk through a whole bunch of other things that are in here. 
But there's some regulations in the priest's life, not in his personal life, but also in his family life about how do you engage those who are immediately closest to you who are living very sinful existences. So what is what does Jesus do with that? As the great high priest. Well, throughout the whole of the New Testament, what we see Jesus doing is he sits down and eats with tax collectors and sinners. Now, before you get lost in the in the meme wars that exist on the Internet. I like to make myself sound a little older than I am on the interweb when you're up on the interweb and you're looking at the at the, you know, your 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 YouTube and the tweets. I know none of that's right. All the kids are like so confused, right? You should see everybody who's like under the age of 25, right? They're totally confused. And so when you're when you're on the Internet and you're doing all your stuff and you're checking the memes, do not get sucked into this faulty notion that goes around in meme theology world of the reason why Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes is because he was totally fine with their behavior. That's not why Jesus ate with tax collectors, sinners and prostitutes. Jesus sat down and ate with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes that he might show them the kingdom of God. The priest was supposed to kind of stiff arm the people around him. I got to kind of make space. Jesus sat down and shared meals with the most broken of us. That they might see the merciful compassion of the grace of God, not to affirm them in their behavior, but to point them to the glory of salvation that only comes from the hand of the almighty. And friends, this is likely how we as a royal priesthood need to approach those around us who are in sin. I do not affirm their sinful behavior. But friends, I certainly do not hate them because of their sinful behavior. Because, and we'll get to this in a minute, such were many of you before you were called. But for the grace of God, so go I. Third, what do we see here? In, in these regulations for the priests, there was... A great restriction on those who were physically infirm, those who had something physically wrong with them, those who had something physically limiting them. They could not do the work of a priest. They couldn't enter into the tabernacle and make the sacrifices. They couldn't attend to the work that was to be done. Again, here's why I said our cross references the entire New Testament. How did Jesus feel about the physically infirm? He was profoundly compassionate to them. I mean, all throughout the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, we have these stories about people with all manners of diseases and blindness and sickness and those who were lame and those who were lepers and those who were demon possessed. And those who were blind and those who were deaf and those who were mute constantly being brought to Jesus so he could touch them and heal them and meet their needs and love them where they were. Did Jesus heal everybody? No. 
I'm sure when he ascended, there were still plenty of blind and deaf and mute and physically infirm people throughout the entire nation of Israel. Did he heal some of them? Absolutely he did. Did Jesus have a profound compassion for those who had physical limitations? Yes, he did. And what's magnificent about it is when you walk through the history of Christianity, some of the greatest people who have now done what you could deem as priestly work, because we're all called to priestly work, the sharing of the glory of Christ, interceding on behalf of broken mankind with a holy God through prayer and through the declaration of the gospel and through works of mercy and compassion. So much of that now is done well by those who have profound physical limitations. Because in the greater priesthood that Jesus Christ is establishing, the better priesthood that Jesus Christ is establishing, he's making a declaration to the world. You do not have to come to God in perfect flawlessness to be able to be used for his glory and his kingdom. But you can come as broken as you possibly can be. And God in his sovereign providence can use you in spite of yourself to do greater things than you ever could have accomplished on your own. Hashtag Moses had a speech impediment. Notice Moses is not the one making the offering in the tabernacle. Because Moses did not speak well. That's why Aaron became a sidekick. Remember that from Exodus. Lord, I don't speak well. The implication there being... I have a problem speaking correctly. Okay, fine. Your brother Aaron speaks great. He'll be your he'll be your mouth. You tell him what to say, he'll say it. And that's what they did from then out. Especially with Pharaoh. We don't have Moses making the sacrifice, so why not? He's got a physical limitation. He can't go in there and be the priest. Can't do that. He has a deformity. Praise be to God that that is not how the new covenant priesthood is. One of the greatest preachers I have ever heard. And some of you may not know his name. He refers to himself as just a good old country preacher. His name is David Miller. Some of you may recognize the name. Some of you probably have heard of him. Some of you may not have. David Miller had a substantial disorder and disease that debilitated his body. And as a very young man, placed him into a wheelchair, made it very difficult for him to use his hands well and certainly to use his legs well. The older it got, the worse that it became. But his mind stayed incredibly sharp. And he felt called into ministry as a young man. And when being mentored by someone, he had a difficulty doing something as basic as putting a Bible on the table and turning the pages and writing notes. Because of how debilitating his disease was. Something that I take completely for granted when I sit down to study and I'm flipping through pages and I'm typing on a computer and I'm writing stuff on a dry board. He can't do any of that stuff when he's prepping for a sermon. And so the guy that mentored him said, you're going to have to do it different. 
And he said, can you memorize the text? And just remember what it says. And can you formulate an outline in your head that you memorize, that you remember where in the text you want to insert the exposition of the text? And he said, I can try. And so he conditioned himself for his sermon prep to read through the text 50 to 100 times before he ever even started working on the sermon so that he could quote the entire passage that he was going to preach on that week verbatim and then insert his expositional thoughts as he was quoting the text because he could not hold a Bible to turn the pages to read it while he was preaching. And I've sat in a room before filled with preachers at a seminary at the opening weekend of a new semester where he came as a guest preacher. All of us training to preach God's word. And they rolled him up onto a stage in his wheelchair. And he quoted essentially the entire book of Malachi. And then preached the whole book of Malachi without touching one piece of paper. And you want to tell me That his physical infirmities were keeping him from doing the new covenant work of priesthood. No, thank you. It was profoundly powerful. Why? Because God doesn't need you to be able to hold paper. Or speak well. Or walk well. Or even be able to see. To do amazing things in your life. In fact, the more broken you are, the more glorious God looks when he uses you. Because there's a bunch of you in here today who are saying, hey, look, there's this thing I got and I can't. No, I don't want to hear that. God doesn't want to hear that. There's not anything that you've got that God can't overcome to use for his glory. It's a better priesthood. And Jesus showed that the way he engaged the infirm in his ministry. And then, of course, Jesus himself was a perfect sacrifice. Friends, you can talk all you want to about bringing flawless, blameless animals. There's only ever been one flawless, blameless sacrifice. And it was the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. The priest making the sacrifice in his own tabernacle, his own temple of his own body. He was the priest, the sacrifice, and the location of the sacrifice. It was perfect and flawless. He entered into a tabernacle not made with hands and offered his own blood to his father. So what does that mean for us then? I want you to flip to a couple of texts in the New Testament as we get ready to close. (coughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if you want to put a finger in it, we're going to go over to 1 Peter chapter 2 in just a minute. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The larger context of 1 Corinthians 6 is not specific to priesthood. But it is specific to our salvation, our inheritance of the kingdom, and our pursuit of righteousness. Which all folds itself into this reality that he's making us into priests for our God. Beginning in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Now, listen, I want you to hear this list. And then I want you to hear what Paul says about this list. A lot of stuff on this list would exclude someone from being able to serve as a priest in Leviticus 21 and 22. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Praise be to God. There's a verse 11. Such were some of you. Who is the man that God cannot save? From the human perspective, the answer is no one. God can save anyone that he wants to. I love the story between Spurgeon and a guy that came to him at the end of one of his services. The guy was weeping and he was broken and he was moved by the message of the glory of Jesus that he heard. And of course, Spurgeon just encouraged him. He said, well, then just call out on the Savior. He said, but, but Pastor Spurgeon, you, you don't know what I've done. It's a paraphrase of the story. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how great of a sinner I have been. And for some of us in the room, we resonate with that. We go, you don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know how great of a sinner I've been. And Spurgeon's response, classic. He said, sir, I don't know how great of a sinner you are. But I know how great of a savior Jesus is. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. That means you were made clean. You were made pure. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Friends, there's some of you hanging on to sins that you've been forgiven of and you're using them as an excuse not to do priestly duties in this world. Look at all this tragic stuff that I've done, all these things that would keep me from being useful in the kingdom of God. The only thing that keeps you from being useful in the kingdom of God is your arrogance that somehow Jesus is not great enough to forgive you of your sins. Flip forward to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9. Now, right before this, he's talking about the precious living stone of Christ Jesus, the great chief cornerstone that the whole thing's being built up and how it's crushing some of those who are not receiving it. Some are stumbling on it, falling on it to their doom. And, and then he gets to those that he's speaking to. Verse 9 of First Peter chapter 2, he says, But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. 
You are a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war on the soul, and keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing that they slander you as evildoers, they may be because of your good deeds as they observe them. Glorify God in the day of his visitation. Friends, there's a calling on our lives. When we have been redeemed by Christ, we are now part of priesthood. Christ Jesus being our great high priest. We participating in the represent. What is a priest supposed to do? A priest is supposed to represent Broken humanity to a holy God and back again. A priest is supposed to make intercession for those who are in their sins to a God who would redeem them from their sins. We now live in incarnational reality. Christ Jesus is our head. We are his body. Christ Jesus is the husband. We are his bride. Christ Jesus is the shepherd. We are his sheep. Christ Jesus is the high priest. We are his priesthood. We represent the glory of God to a broken, fallen world. That's what we do. We proclaim his excellencies in a kingdom of darkness because he's transferred us from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light of the beloved son, Jesus Christ. This is what has happened to us. And now we reflect the glory of God in the world. You say, Philip, I don't feel like I do that. You know what? I don't feel like I do that most of the time either. But it's what I'm supposed to be about. It's what I'm called to be. It's who he's making me to become. And friends, there's this slamming together of two different things found in the New Testament. Such were some of you. All of us. All of us. We still carry the baggage of our past and present sins around with us. If we're just honest, that's what we do. We have that sin that so easily besets us. We have that thing or things that trip us up so easily. We have that struggle. We have that thorn in our flesh. We have that, that thing that hamstrings us. That thing that we struggle with. We have that past that the accuser constantly reminds us of. We remember how tasty and delicious it was to eat the morsels of Egypt, even though we were slaves. We forget that this difficult trudging that we're doing through this desert wandering will eventually land us in a land of promise flowing with milk and honey, seated at the king's banquet table, seated on thrones with him, seated in heavenly places with him, clothed with his righteousness, feasting with the most high God, ruling with him as princesses and princesses of his kingdom because we are his adopted, truly born children. And he has given us a crown of glory and life and righteousness 
forgiveness and redemption. And we forget that the striving and the struggling that's happening in between is really all of His grace and not of our effort. And we sometimes longingly look back to the way that life used to be when we could just pursue our pleasures and not have to die to ourselves and then in turn give glory to Christ who's truly making us alive. And there's this struggle as such were some of you, but now you are a royal priesthood. And a people for his own possession. Chosen race. And friends, there's a real struggle in the in-between. There's a real struggle in the in-between. For the old priesthood. For the Leviticus priesthood. Why is this priesthood of the new covenant superior in every way? Because in the old priesthood. Any of those restrictions that you felt. What was your life like? What's your body like? What limitations do you have? What's your background like? What's your family like? How do you mourn for people? How do you not mourn for people? What do you touch? What don't you touch? When do you touch it? How, how, do, you, how do you do? All these regulations about stuff. Hey, did you accidentally bump into something that was unclean? Now you're unclean. Wash yourself. Don't go in there. Come back out here. Go outside. Come back in here. This, this was the restrictions of the old priesthood. The new priesthood. I have taken you to myself, the Lord Jesus Christ declares, and I have made you holy. You are holy. Not you're becoming holy. Not you're striving to be holy. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are holy. Holy. That's who you are. By the way, all throughout the New Testament, I told you the whole New Testament is our cross reference for the day. All throughout the New Testament, when it calls us saints, that word means holy ones. That's what that word means. Those who are holy. That's what we are. It's not what we're becoming. I'm striving to be holy, then you're missing it. You don't strive to accomplish something that you already have. You don't wake up on Christmas morning when someone has lined the room with presents to give to you, gifts to give to you, and go, all right, what work do I have to do today to get those? They're gifts. They already belong to you. And one of the great gifts that's been given to us in Christ Jesus is the gift of holiness. In other words, there's nothing keeping you From standing in the presence of God, representing his glory to a broken world. That means priesthood. It's what you are. You are, as Peter says here, look at, I want you to see it one more time. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. To do what? Here's the new priesthood. The old priesthood was, bring me your sacrifices, bring me your grains, bring me your incense, bring me the stuff. We're going to burn the liver up. We're going to take the refuse out here. We're going to burn the carcass, not burn the carcass. We're going to eat it. We're going to not eat it. We're going to eat it on one day. We're going to eat it on two days. I'm exhausted already just trying to think it through. That's the old priesthood. Hey, Aaron, your mom died. You can't go mourn her. You got to keep burning the animals. That's the old priesthood. New priesthood. Here you go. You ready? You want to be a part of the new priesthood? Here it is. So that, so that you can do what? 
You've become all these things by the grace of God. For what purpose? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's your job description. What am I supposed to do as a new covenant priest who's been declared holy by God? I'm supposed to make much of Jesus. That's it. And friends, I want to go ahead and tell you, you can't write down in a law book all the different ways that you can make much of Jesus. You could do what I'm doing. And you could open up God's word and you could expound on it among the fellowship in a corporate worship time. You know what? I hope and I pray I'm making much of Jesus when I do that. Or you know what? You could do something even more profound and important than that. And you could go home and love your spouse. Or you could do something even more profound than what I'm doing right now. And you could go home and just lovingly spend time with your children. Or you could do something even more profound than what I'm doing right now. And you could be a good worker at your job working for the glory of God and not for the paycheck. Or you could do something even more profound than what I'm doing right now. And you could, you know, not be that guy in traffic. You know who I'm talking about. If you don't know who I'm talking about, then you're that guy. Don't, don't be him. A lot of times I'm that guy. I hope this is enough. Kidding. I need to find holiness on the street in my car. You could not be that person. At the checkout line at Brookshire's or at Walmart. You know that person. Don't be that person. And there's a host. I could stand up here all day. And give real life practical examples. Of how we could proclaim his excellency. Who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And friends, a lot of times we wrongly think, oh, well, to really do it, I've got to do like what Philip's doing or I've got to do like what my missionary friend's doing. No, 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 no. The whole world gets changed by you making much of Jesus regularly with the people that you come in closest contact with most often. Martin Luther, I'll close with this. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that more is done for the kingdom of God when a father changes his child's diapers than in all of the monasteries and in all of the cathedrals and all of the world. When you love in Christ those closest to you and make much of Jesus with them regularly And consistently, you are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. And friends, it's not hard. Because God knows we're dumb sheep. And dumb sheep don't do hard things. He's made it ridiculously simple for us. Love God. Love people. That's the new priesthood. 
Praise be to God. It is superior in every way to the old priesthood. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is making us to be priests, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a chosen race. Father, thank you that the mandate that he gives to us in this new priesthood is to proclaim his excellencies, for he has called us out of darkness and moved us into marvelous light. Father, let our lives reflect this greater priesthood that Christ has established. Not one bogged down with regulations, not one bogged down with blood and with death and with the stench of death and with the fear of death for engaging it wrongly. But Father, one that is marked by love and compassion and grace and joy and peace. Father, help us to live our lives publicly, freely in this reality of our new priesthood. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.